So in the beginning of fourth grade, my parents decided to move our family from Queens and Flushing to Long Island. And that's when I realized for the first time that I looked a little bit different than the other people in my school. I didn't realize it though until a specific moment in fourth grade. I got in trouble in fourth grade for forging my mom's signature and my teacher told my mom to come into school. And so she wanted to scold me, but my mom didn't know how to speak English at that time. And so they asked the, the only other Korean student in my grade to come and translate for us. And there was this huge scene right outside my classroom. All the other students were listening as my mom was trying to figure out what my teacher was trying to say as my other friend was interpreting. And as soon as that session ended with the teacher and my mom and that other student, I walked in and all the other students started to mock me, started to mock my mom, started to make fun of me. And that's when I realized for the first time in my life that I felt like I didn't belong. And I felt like I wasn't accepted. And I felt like I was different. Well, good morning, Grace Chapel. Good to be with you all. I'm Pastor Brian. This is Pastor Ruthie, and we're happy to be with you here today. Uh, we talked this fall about doing some things a little bit differently in our worship and our preaching, just to kind of keep things fresh. So today, Pastor Ruthie and I are going to work on the message together as we think together about the communion table or the Lord's Supper. Now, if you know Pastor Ruthie at all, you know that she loves communion almost as much as she loves Pentecost, but she loves this. So she seemed like a great person to partner with me on this particular um, message. Like many churches in our tradition, we observe communion typically once a month and usually on the first Sunday of the month. That's a wonderful tradition, and we're not thinking about changing that. But we did think about, during this Belonging series, celebrating the communion more often and in some different ways. So we'll be doing communion for the next few weeks in a variety of ways. Because we're going to discover today that the table is a powerful way to experience true belonging. So Ruthie and I are going to begin together sharing a little bit of our personal stories of communion. Then I'll do some teaching, and then Ruthie will come back and lead us to the table. Now, I don't want you to miss out on the fact that there's a certain irony in Ruthie and I working together on the subject of belonging and communion, because Ruthie loves the Red Sox almost as much as she loves Jesus, okay? <laughs> almost. And I happen to have an affection for a different team. So we are practicing oneness in the body of Christ right here today <laughs> as we work together. So thank you, Ruthie. Well, I grew up in mostly Baptist churches, and um, as I look back on my experience with communion, two words come to mind, solemn and solitary. Communion was always a very solemn occasion in our church. We only observed it once a month, so it wouldn't become routine and people wouldn't, uh, would not take it seriously. So communion Sundays were always special Sundays. And you knew as soon as you walked in, because in front would be a big table stacked with gleaming silver trays of cups and of bread. There would usually be some special music that day. People actually dressed nicer on Communion Sunday. The service would last a little bit longer. When it came time for Communion, a group of 12 very serious-looking men in very serious suits would come marching seriously down the center aisle and take 12 straight-back chairs, looking out very seriously over the congregation. The pastor would recite the words of institution, the same words spoken the same way every time. 
And then, with great reverence, he would begin to distribute the trays to the deacons that were gathered on each side, and methodically, they would pass them back and forth. And as a kid, I was mesmerized by the precision of the whole thing. It was like synchronized swimming, watching this thing unfold. And then, when that was all done, the deacons would scatter and distribute the elements to the congregation. And that's when it got solitary. Because that's when we would bow our heads and quietly wait for the tray to come our way. The idea was not to be distracted by looking around the room or by special things happening on the platform or even by making eye contact with the people we were passing plates to. I mean, the pastor had just reminded us not to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So this was a time to, to hunker down and search our hearts and get right with God. Now, I was part of a very large and lively congregation. But those 15 minutes were the most solemn and solitary of the whole month. And while I sometimes had meaningful moments in communion, most of the time it felt so out of sync with the way we normally worshiped and related to each other. And so from time to time, I would find myself wondering if, if I was really, if we were really experiencing everything that communion was supposed to mean. So Ruthie, why don't you come and tell your story a little bit? So growing up in our little Baptist church up in Maine, I always looked forward to Communion Sunday for two significant reasons. The first was my dad was a deacon, so after worship we would help him with the trays and I'd get to drink all the leftover juice from the little glass cups. <laughs> and contrary to Brian's experience where their service usually ran a little long, we were guaranteed a shorter sermon. It was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. And it did take some time for me to gain an appreciation for the significance and the drama of the table. I went to the Urbana Missions Conference as a seminary student about 30 years ago. And um, we walked into an arena of 20,000 students from all across the country and all around the world, and we were going to celebrate communion on New Year's Eve. The students who were serving were dressed in white shirts and black pants so we could see them in the arena going up and down the stairs and the aisles. It was mesmerizing. It was so beautifully choreographed. I was captivated by that. After my husband John and I were married, I was introduced to Presbyterian liturgy. And I remember hearing these words, this is the joyful feast of the people of God. But then I would look around and see similar solemn faces. And I thought, there's a disconnect here. It seems the joyful feast has become a little bit routine. When John and I moved to upstate New York, I began serving on staff of a church as a Christian educator. And the pastors with whom I served were committed and passionate about worship and about elevating the drama of the table. During the hymn, after the sermon, the ushers would start coming forward, and there was like this buzz in the room. 
And Harry and Kate would stand at the table and the first usher had the white tablecloth and they would drape it. And then the next usher had the pitcher and they would set it down. Then the chalice, then the bread, and then the stacks of the trays of the bread and juice. It was like they were so excited they were setting the table for something special. I watched as Harry would lift the bread high so everyone could see it. And I hung on his words. This is the body of Christ, given for you, take and eat. And then Kate would move to the table and take the pitcher and the cup, and she poured out the juice and said, this is my blood, poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Watching them was like watching someone handle precious antiques. I was captivated again. But it was more than that. For as I continued to be a part of that congregation and sit in the pew on Sundays, there began a stirring inside of me. I started imagining what would it be like to be able to break the bread, to pour the cup, to be able to retell the story of what Jesus has done for us. I can't describe for you adequately enough the feelings I had, but it was an ache deep down in my soul, I literally longed to be at the table. Whatever your background has been, I'm sure you have a communion story or two as well. And probably it's a mixed bag as for Ruthie and for me. Moments of wonder and meaning and significance, and then other moments of being not exactly sure what's, what's happening or what you're supposed to feel, feel at the moment or how you're supposed to respond to what's happening. So we're going to spend a little time today thinking about our practice of communion or the Lord's Supper, what it means, why we do it the way we do, and how we can participate more meaningfully in it. Because as we said, the table is an important aspect of our belonging to one another. So we're going to take a break from our study of Paul's letter to the Roman church, and we're going to dip today into his letter to the Corinthian church. Now, the church at Corinth, like the church at Rome, was having a problem with belonging. There were factions and divisions in that church. So uh, let's see what was happening there and what relevance it it might have to us. We're going to jump into the middle of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 11. We're going to begin at verse 17. Paul writes, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. No doubt there have to be divisions among you to show which of you have the Lord's approval. You hear the sarcasm in Paul's voice. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for as you eat, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. Well, imagine getting a letter like that from your pastor. Imagine being told that our worship services and our communion celebrations actually do more harm than good. Something had obviously gone terribly wrong in this church. There's something wrong with their practice of communion. So let's find out what it was and what it might have to teach us. It was customary in the early church when they gathered like this to celebrate two dinners, 
The first was more of a social dinner. It was often called the agape or the love feast. Think of it like a potluck dinner without the green bean casserole, okay? It was that sort of thing. It was a social occasion for the church to spend time together. And then after the love feast, or sometimes embedded in the middle of it, would be the celebration of what had come to be called the Lord's Supper, the body and, and, and the blood. These gatherings would typically take place in the homes of the more wealthy members of the church. Remember, there weren't church buildings then, so they met in people's homes. And so if the whole group was going to gather, they needed the home of one of their wealthier members. So what was happening was that on these gathering occasions, the wealthier members who, who traveled in the same social circles and who had a little more freedom in their schedule, they arrived early. And, and they took over the house, and they consumed almost all of the food and apparently an awful lot of the wine as well. So that later in the day, when the working class people were finally free from their jobs and able to come, all that was there was leftovers. And they often found themselves shoved out to the outer parts of the house or sometimes even the outside courtyard. And that felt terrible. And it perpetuated the class divisions that were so prominent in Greek and Roman life. But, but this is the church. Things are supposed to be different here in the church. This is a place where everybody is supposed to belong. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, men and women, upper crust and working class, everybody together. It wasn't just a matter of feelings being hurt. For some of the more needy members of the congregation, that love feast, that agape dinner, that might have been the one square meal they were going to get that day, and maybe even that week. So these divisions, this self-centeredness, this insensitivity to the people around them, this had no place in the church least of all, around the Lord's table. And so Paul, Paul is shocked and he's angry. He accuses them of what amounts to spiritual malpractice. Your meetings do more harm than good. Now, clearly, Paul's addressing a very specific and very egregious violation of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be about. But the sad truth is that the church has struggled with factions and divisions from the very beginning. In fact, let's think back to that very first Lord's Supper, the one Jesus himself hosted. What was going on around the table that night? Arguments over who was more important, which one was first and last. And so it has gone through all the history of the church. In the first century, those divisions were over things like Jew or Gentile, or slave or free, or men or women, or rich or poor. In our 21st century church, the divisions tend to be over some different things, black and white, Protestant and Catholic, high church, low church, traditional contemporary, Republican, Democrat. Now, these differences don't usually surface when we're celebrating communion as we politely pass the plates back and forth to each other. 
But these differences, these divisions are always lurking beneath the surface of our relationships with each other. And if we're not careful, they keep us from experiencing true belonging. Or they keep some members of our body from experiencing true belonging. So what's the answer? I mean, it's obvious that human beings have have a problem with division and differences. So why can things be different in the church? What's the answer? Well, Paul's going to make it very clear in his next words. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, those words should sound familiar. The very same words that we speak every time we celebrate communion. And the truth is, they're the same words that Jesus and his apostles spoke in the very first century. 2,000 years later, we are speaking the same words when we come to this table. There's something powerful about that. And not only that, these are the same words being spoken in almost every language on almost every nation on earth today, in fact. It turns out that today is World Communion Sunday, when churches all over the planet are celebrating and coming to this table, being reminded of our oneness in Christ. So there's a great power, unifying power in this table. But it's not just the fact that we say the right words. The power is in in these elements and what they represent. The bread representing the, the body of Christ broken for us. The bread reminds us that that Jesus of Nazareth, the most beautiful human being who ever walked the planet, the most righteous life that has ever been lived, he suffered humiliation, betrayal, rejection, abandonment, injustice, torture, loneliness, and ultimately death for us to save us, to bring us into his family as sons and daughters of God. Now, the scripture tells us that Jesus' bones were not physically broken, but he was broken in every other way, relationally, emotionally, spiritually even, as he experienced that agony of separation from his father. Isaiah tells us that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. The consequence of our sin and failure was upon him. And he did it for us to bring us into his family so we could be forgiven and free. And the bread reminds us of that. But there's more, Paul says. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That cup filled with with the red wine or the red juice reminding us of the shed blood of Christ reminds us, first of all, that our sins have been forgiven. We are free and, and reconciled to God. But it also reminds us that we are reconciled to one another. That new covenant language When Paul uses that word covenant, he's hearkening back to the Old Testament. 
where the Lord made a covenant with his people. You will be my people, and I will be your God. When we share this cup together, we're saying we belong to God. And because we belong to God, we belong to each other as well. And so one aspect of communion is to be reminded of what Jesus has done for each one of us, reconciling us to God so that we become sons and daughters, members of his family. And I remember one communion service in particular from my growing up years. I think I was in high school at the time. It was a Good Friday service, and so it was all about the communion table. I don't remember exactly what was said or sung in the early part of that service, but I know it was about the suffering and the sacrifice of Christ. And I remember sitting in the pew and receiving the bread and the cup, and for some reason on that particular night, it hit me in a very powerful way that Jesus had done all this for me, suffered sacrificed, laid down his life so that I could enjoy a relationship with him and all the goodness of life that I was enjoying with him. And it just, it hit me in that moment on a communion, in a communion celebration. I don't remember what the organ was playing at the time, but chances are good. It was Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And Chris Tomlin hadn't come along yet, but if he had, I would have been singing, oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised my life up from the dead. And I'd have been crying as I sang it. That's how meaningful it was. And I am forever grateful for that moment between me and Jesus at the table. And so there certainly is an aspect of communion that is very personal, that is very solitary even, as we're reminded of what Christ has done for us. But we dare not stop there because there's something else going on here, something that we dare not miss. And that's the communal aspect of this table. We not only belong to God because of what Christ has done, we get to belong to each other as well. If we're sons and daughters of God, then we're brothers and sisters with each other, members of the same family. When we forget that, when we lose sight of each other, when we neglect each other, when we don't take each other seriously, when we don't care for each other, well, then we are beginning to dishonor and disrespect and neglect the very body of Christ and this table. So that's where Paul goes in this next section, verse 27. Therefore, he says, whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread or drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now, this is a sobering passage. We don't like the idea that the Lord's table comes with a warning label. Caution. Eating from this table could be hazardous to your health. But that's what Paul's telling us. No wonder communion can feel like such a solemn occasion at times. No wonder we bow our heads and make sure we are right with God in that moment. But don't miss the fact that the overall context of this passage is relational, not personal, not individual. The malpractice that Paul's confronting is communal, not private. When he says, 
discern the body of Christ, he's not just talking about the body of Christ hung on the cross for us. He's talking about the body of Christ in the room with us at that very moment. Pay attention to that body, he says. So when he asks us to examine ourselves, it's not just about examining our relationship with Christ, although we begin there. It's also about examining our relationships with each other. Are we really in genuine fellowship with each other? Are we sharing the experiences of life and faith with each other? Or are we just sitting near each other in worship once a week? Are we deferring to one another, putting others' interests and needs ahead of our own? Or are we insisting on having things our way around church or around home or around the office? Are we being patient with each other and forgiving each other? Or are we holding on to hurts and grudges? Are we seeking to understand each other and even appreciate each other? Even to appreciate the differences among us, the theological differences, the cultural differences, and yes, even the political differences. Are we actually listening and understanding and respecting and appreciating one another? Well, now you can see why we need to bow our heads. Because we have a lot to think about. Not just how are we doing with the Lord, but how are we doing with each other and our brothers and sisters in Christ? It turns out there's only one solution to the things that divide us as human beings, and that is the body and the blood of Christ. Because that body and blood not only provides our forgiveness, but also provides for us an example of how we relate to each other. If Jesus is willing to suffer and lay down his rights and privileges to save us, how can we do anything less for one another and even for the world around us? It's not a table for two, you and Jesus. It's a table for the whole lot of us. And if Jesus has seated us at this table with each other, then he must expect us to be treating each other like we're members of a family like we care about and are engaged with and attentive to each other. And that's why the church has to be different from the world. That's why we have to find a better way of handling our differences and, and demonstrating community and love even in the midst of diversity. If human history tells us anything, friends, if last week's news feed tells us anything, it tells us that human beings are a lot better at dividing than we are at belonging. So we need help. We need an answer. We need a uniter. We need a reconciler. And his name is Jesus. And he reconciles us to God so that we can then be reconciled to each other. And friends, more than ever, the world needs the church to be the church, to show how how people exist and live together in genuine community with each other. The world needs us to show them. And that's why the table is so important. Because the table reminds us that we belong to each other because we belong to Christ. 
Because of Christ, we're able to belong to each other. Otherwise, we would never be able to pull this thing off. He gives us the forgiveness and the freedom to be members of his family. And so the communion table isn't just about you and the Lord. It begins there. It's about you and your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about you and the people who are sitting right near you today. It's about you and the people who like different worship music than you do. It's about the people who speak a different language than you do. It's about the people who might have more or less money than you do. It's about people who might vote differently than you do. It's about all the brothers and sisters in Christ seated around you. Because Christ has reconciled us to God, we can be and want to be reconciled to each other. And every time we come to this table, we remind ourselves of that. We need this table at least once a month because it reminds us that we belong to each other because we belong to Christ. So that's what we're going to celebrate it a few more times in this series. The next three weeks, next two weeks, in fact, we'll be celebrating communion a little bit differently each time. It's interesting that with Paul's careful instructions here, he doesn't give us any instructions as to exactly how we should do it, when we should do it, where we should do it, what elements or uh, what, what utensils we should use, what kind of table we should have. That's all up to us. He simply tells us why to do it in remembrance of him and in relationship with each other. And so he concludes with these words. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. Wait for each other. It's like your family at the dinner table. You don't want to start till everybody's there. And not just till everybody's there, but till everybody's known. Everybody's connected. Everybody's engaged. Everyone's being paid attention to. Everyone's being valued. Wait for each other and then come to this table because it's not a table for two, you and Jesus. It's not a table for 12, a spiritually elite group. It's a table for whoever will come for as many who will come to find forgiveness and freedom in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in that spirit, we'd like to approach the table today. And Pastor Ruthie's going to come and prepare us for that moment. One writer has said, to take the table or the meal lightly is to take the Lord's death lightly. Brian has mentioned this important aspect of not only being reconciled to God when we come to the table, but being reconciled to one another. And the early church leaders did not take Paul's words lightly. They understood that it was something that they needed to work on. And so early in the church, they adopted a ritual called the passing of the peace before coming to the table. They would take an intentional pause in their time of worship to offer and to receive the peace of Christ, to be reconciled to one another. In many churches today, that still occurs in their order of worship, a passing of the peace. But for some, it's become routine or even lost its meaning. I can remember visiting churches where that was the case and I would walk around just, isn't this just a fancy greeting? It didn't, I never understood it. So today as we prepare to come to the table, as a family of brothers and sisters, we are going to take an intentional pause. 
actually for a minute or two, which will feel like a very long time, to offer words of peace to one another. And we want to go beyond that. We want you to learn or remind yourself of the names of the people around you. We want when you receive the trays of bread and juice that you would turn to one another and say your names as you offer them the bread, as you offer them the cup. Maybe even take a moment to find out how long they've been at Grace Chapel. And even, or especially, if this is your first time visiting with us today. And as you begin, you can say the traditional words if you wish. Some of you may even be from some of those traditions where this was a part of your faith life. The traditional words are, the peace of Christ be with you, and the response is, and also with you. But you could also just say, peace. And do it looking in each other's eyes. Smile a little bit. Shake each other's hand. Maybe even offer a hug. It's okay. This is more than just a greeting. Friends, this is a holy moment to offer and to receive the peace of Christ with one another. And in this moment, I encourage you that if you are holding something, a hurt or a grudge against another, purpose that this week you would take care of that so that when we next come to the table, you know that that peace is true between you. Now, you know, what I had not realized all those years ago with my friends Harry and Kate at the table was that the Spirit had been using these holy moments to build up in my life till I recognized that he was calling me to be an ordained as a pastor. And it wasn't until 11 years later when that deep ache and that longing were realized as I had the honor to be able to serve communion with my husband John on my ordination day. Celebrating communion has become a habit or a, a, a very important part of all of our youth retreats and mission trips that John and I did together. And now I was gonna be able to offer the bread and the juice myself to our students. I still love when I get invited to do that with students or with children. In fact, just last week in Wilmington, I was invited to come and lead our class called First Impressions. We had 27 moms and dads and children gathered together and we talked about what's important about worship and why do we want children to be in worship. Boys and girls, I am glad to see you out there today. And I wanna be sure you watch what's happening at this table. At the end of our class, we invited each family to come one at a time and come up to the table. And Angela, Tom, and I got to watch and listen as moms and dads bent over the table and offered bread and offered juice to their sons and daughters in quiet, whispered tones. And then they came over to Angela and they got a little pottery cup underneath we had written, welcome to the table, and Angela wrote their name on it. And then the family group would go and pray with Pastor Tom, who would pray a blessing over each family. It was a holy moment. In fact, in Wilmington this morning, there just might be one or two or three of those boys and girls who are going to be taking communion today for the very first time with their families. And my prayer is that not just they, but all of us would once again be captivated by the table. Friends, the peace of Christ is with us.
because of this table. And this table reminds us indeed that because we belong to Christ, we do belong to each other. So whether it's in an arena of 20,000 college students or it's in a little classroom with a group of parents and children, whatever room you might be in right now, this table right here, right now, is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the joyful feast of the people of God. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you We thank you so much that you loved us enough to ask your son to give his life for us. Lord, let us not take your death on the cross lightly and let us not take this meal lightly. But let us also come with joyful faces and joyful hearts and spirits as we realize that we are one with you and one with one another because Jesus not only died for us, but rose for us to give us new life. May you be glorified as we come to the table together. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.